Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This replay of a live broadcast is titled, BCMA, Who and When? Immunotherapies in Patients with Relapsed Refractory Multiple Myeloma is provided by Prova Education. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hello and welcome to the Prova Education program titled BCMA, Who and When? Immunotherapies in Patients with Relapsed Refractory Multiple Myeloma. My name is Saad Usmani. I'm the Chief of the Myeloma Service, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Dr. Amrita Krishnan from the City of Hope um, in Duarte, California, and Dr. Sikandar Alawadi uh, at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. And what we're going to be focusing on is some of the novel uh, treatment options um, in the relapsed refractory multiple myeloma space. Um, and here, you know, we have had a lot of conversation around um, class of drug refractiveness rather than the lines of therapy. Um, and so the three specific classes of drugs that, that we refer to are the proteasome inhibitors, immunomolitory drugs, as well as anti-C38 monoclonal antibodies. And what we found from the mammoth uh, study, uh, which looked at this patient population um, uh, from roughly a dozen academic centers, um, is the more refractory patients get to uh, uh, classes of therapies, as well as drugs within a class of therapies, the dismal, the outcome. So if you have someone who is refractory to two classes of drugs, the median OS is around 11 months. If they are triple class or triple drug or quadruple drug refractory, um, the uh, median OS is about nine months. If patients are pentarefractory, which refers to being refractory to an anti-C38 monoclonal antibody, two IMIDs and two PIs, um, then that median OS drops down to about 5.6 months. This highlights the fact that we need novel mechanisms of actions and novel therapies for our relapse refractory multiple myeloma patients. This is where you know we've seen a lot of uh, news recently about BCMA or B cell maturation antigen. Um, this particular surface protein is preferentially expressed on mature B lymphocytes um, as well as on plasma cells. In fact, its overexpression and activation is associated with progression of multiple myeloma, and that's what makes it um, you know, a lucrative target. Uh, the good news is we now have three uh, BCMA-directed therapies that are FDA approved, one by specific antibody called teclistamab, which was approved in October of 2022, and two CAR T-cell therapies um, that have been approved, one called idacaptogene viclucil or idacel approved in March of 2021, and siltacaptogen autolucil um, or siltacel, which was approved in February of 2022. With this being said, I'm going to pass on the baton to Dr. Sikandar Alawadi to cover his section of this program. Thank you. Hi, I'm Sikandar Alawadi from Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. And today we'll be talking about leveraging community partnerships to optimize BCMA-directed therapies. Now, as these treatments become available, it is extremely important to talk about the logistics and workflow so that the right treatment can reach the right patient at the right time. So hopefully today we'll cover some of these factors and topics and um, be able to come up with a plan of how to get the right uh, treatment to the patients. 
we typically talk about some form of this uh, slide or this data where we say that every time we talk, uh, we select a treatment option for a patient, we should take into account uh, patient factors, disease factors, and treatment-related factors. And as our treatment options keep increasing, the number of these factors which have to be taken into account, so whether it's at home or in the institution, the way of administration, financial implications, caregiver support, uh, comorbidities of the patients, the side effect profile, prior treatments, what worked, what didn't work, how much did it work for, et cetera. So I think all of that becomes very, very important. And we need to take the, all of this into consideration every time we talk to a patient about treatments. It's important also to know that every time a treatment regimen is changed or a patient needs a new treatment regimen, there is an attrition. This is data from my colleague, Dr. Fonseca in Mayo, Arizona, where it shows that at least in this particular national data, out of 100 patients who got diagnosed with myeloma, only 1% got to the fifth line treatment. So you can imagine we may have these options available, but we have to make an effort to get the patient to the next treatment. Similarly, it's also important to know that clinical trial population and real world population is very different. A lot of times it is very difficult to um, apply the clinical trial results into the real world patients. And that's where we also notice that sometimes once the drugs become approved uh, and start getting utilized, there are so many factors that come into play and the benefit from a regimen may not exactly be the same as we expected in the cl clinical trials. So important to keep that in mind. So we'll talk briefly about uh, Belantamab as we talked about BCMA-directed options. So Belantamab, uh, which uh, was a, or which is a antibody drug conjugate against BCMA, got approved based on the DREAM2 study single agent um, uh, treatment, single arm study. It had efficacy with a recommended dose of being used every three weeks and um, had an overall response rate of about 32%, heavily pretreated patients. Median prior lines were seven, six to seven. But there was a side effect noted with eye toxicity or keratopathy. So um, based on that, we started using this drug, but most recently, there is data that has come out from the DREAM3 trial, which was a randomized head-to-head -head between belantamab and POMDEX. And unfortunately, that study did not meet its primary endpoint of progression-free survival improvement. So based on that, as of November 22, uh, this drug has been withdrawn from the market as a single agent. Although if patients are on this treatment and are deriving benefit, it's safe, they can continue on it, but new patients will not start on it. Um, there are ongoing combination clinical trials. Uh, there are clinical trials with the kidney dysfunction, et cetera. Those studies are moving on. And possibly this drug would make a comeback down the road in a combination regimen, but we'll have to wait and watch. Uh, so it's important to keep in mind that patients who have been getting it can still continue to get it if they are deriving benefit. Other uh, modalities, including CAR T-cell therapy and bispecific antibodies, have also become available, CAR-Ts, now we have two of them. And recently we have had uh, teclistamab as the bispecific antibody against BCMA that has been FDA approved. Now there are pros and cons to all of these drugs. Off the shelf, one-time intervention, continuous therapy, uh, sub-Q, IV, uh, manufacturing time, logistics. But whenever we decide that a patient needs a BCMA-directed therapy, we try to take all of these factors into account to come up with the right treatment for the patient. It's also extremely important to know that, uh, um, well, in my opinion, at least personally, 
in today's day and age, every patient must get a good fair shot at a BCMA-directed therapy. It's a it's a very, very good treatment modality to go against, uh, go after the BCMA for myeloma patients. We should try our best to get the patient to a legitimate treatment option within this family. So as we talk about CAR T-cell therapy, I mentioned that there are now two FDA-approved and available in the U.S., um, IDACEL, which got approved in March of 21, and SILTACEL, which got approved in February of 22. Structurally different, uh, both go against BCMA, but based on the structural difference and the binding domains where um, IDACEL has one binding domain to the tumor while SILTACEL has two, there are some clinical uh, differences in what we expect out of this. And um, it's important also to keep in mind that at least currently the label for these, both of these is four prior lines of therapy and the patient must have been previously treated with an IMID, a proteasome inhibitor and an anti-CD38 monoclonal antibody. So when we look at them, uh, this is not head-to-head -head comparison, but I'm going with the two studies that led to the FDA approval of these agents. And there are some differences in safety. For example, the median onset from C for CRS, cytokine release syndrome with Siltacel is about seven days. On the other hand, with Idacel is about one day. So logistic issues that we have to figure out on our end of now we're going to, for example, CAR-T as an outpatient uh, in a lot of institutions. So how to handle the side effects, for example. Uh, similarly, some amount of delayed neurotoxicity noted with Siltacel previously, at least as part of the label, but uh, since then we have not necessarily seen too much of an issue there. Uh, also, difference in efficacy, overall response rate higher, deeper uh, with uh, Siltacel as compared to Idacel. Still, um, we're using these both and we're glad that we have these options available for patients. CAR-T cell is a slightly uh, complicated process. Uh, but we have uh, a process figured out in which uh, the patient who is appropriate, it's important to remember, by the way, that these CAR T-cell treatments are the treatment by themselves, as in patients with relapsing refractory disease, progressing disease can go into this treatment. Unlike transplant, which is something we have to clarify to patients all the time, that transplants are given as a consolidative approach, CAR T themselves are the treatment. So when we talk about this treatment, uh, patients typically have their T cells collected, then uh, they are enriched and activated, and then they are transduced with a lentivirus CAR construct. Basically, that's where the um, CAR is created, which will be against BCMA. These um, transduced cells are expanded, packaged, sent back to the institution, and we give them to the patient. Before the patient gets it, they get some outpatient lymphodepletion chemotherapy so that their body's ready to receive the uh, CAR T cells. Uh, there are several steps that have to happen. Patients have to be identified, referred to a specific center. The center identifies the eligibility. That I mentioned the apheresis, conditioning chemotherapy, infusion, manufacturing, availability of slot, et cetera, et cetera. Lots of processes, and we've not had the fair... Uh, I would say luck with uh, CAR T cells and myeloma because there have been some logistic challenges, but hopefully they are actually improving. It's also important to realize that while there are um, the the rate of I'm, I'm using a comparison for auto transplants, our auto transplant numbers have been increasing over the years in the U.S., but we still know that. As per this particular study, only about a third of patients who are eligible for transplant get a transplant. But I can tell you, 
there's data from other studies showing that only about 20% transplant eligible patients get transplant in the US. That brings up the important um, issue that, well, if we're doing that with transplant, which has been there for maybe 25, 30 years, uh, how are we going to fare with CAR-T, which is also logistically a bit challenging. There are barriers to optimal care, and uh, there's a, these are studies that have shown that um, a referral center looks for trusted partners, centers that are referral centers that are closer to the patient, closer to the practice, and have experience. So we need to figure out what are the barriers and how to overcome those barriers. Uh, another study that we've recently done, and this is being presented at this ASH, is surveying healthcare providers in academic and community settings. And we noticed that um, uh, the centers felt or the providers felt that there was insufficient patient information sharing between academics and community. There was a lack of time in clinic to actually discuss all the logistics and, and issues uh, or processes. A lack of expertise from the referring center, the community center, that they could talk about all of this. So many barriers that we've identified. So I would and, uh, maybe you can look through the data from the presentation and see um, what we learned. There's a lot of coordination of care that is required before, during, and after uh, the CAR T treatment. So again, logistics that can be overcome, but we need to make an effort. Uh, I give you a particular workflow that has been discussed, for example, right from intake, consultation, collection, bridging, infusion, early, late care, and then regulatory processes. I can say that uh, working in the CAR-T uh, space, that a lot of this is done by our centers that are already doing the CAR-T treatment. So a community referring um, group may not have to do much, but that's important for them to know. And at the end of it all, I think it's important to remember uh, the study had shown that a lot of times what we forget about are the patient's preferences and what they want. So it's extremely important to always keep in mind what our patient wants, what their goals are. Uh, the study had shown that whatever physicians thought was actually quite different from what the patients wanted. So hopefully we are able to merge those two. And with that, I come to the end of this uh, discussion. Thanks a lot. Hello, everyone. My name is Amrita Krishnan. I am the director of the Judy and Bernard Briskin Center for Myeloma at the City of Hope uh, in Duarte and in Irvine, California. I'm pleased to talk to you today about the nuts and bolts of bispecific antibodies in the treatment of relapsed myeloma. Now, why are they important? They're important because as the field moves forward, survival for myeloma is improved, but there are patients who are either initially refractory or become refractory to approved therapies, most notably the major classes, the proteasome inhibitors, the immunomodulatory drugs, and the anti-CD38 uh, antibodies. And those patients who are triple class refractory have a much shorter median overall survival. Here you see the mammoth study suggesting the median overall survival for those triple and quad refractory patients in 9.2 months. Patients who are pentarefractory have an even poorer overall survival on the order of about six months. So clearly, we still need new agents for patients with relapsed myeloma. So what are the options that we have? Uh, well, it's exciting that we have many uh, options on the horizon, and in fact, uh, a new option that was recently approved as well. So some of the ones on the horizon that have fairly advanced data are the cell mods. Um, 
and also certainly CAR T-cell therapies. We have two approved CAR T-cells for patients with uh, myeloma relapsing after four prior lines of therapy. And we're looking at many other novel T-cell constructs in, in the near future. Today, I'm going to talk about bispecific antibodies. And as I mentioned, we we're fortunate that in fact, um, this past October, we had a bispecific antibody approved in multiple myeloma. But that's really the tip of the iceberg. And we foresee that many uh, new ones will be soon to follow. I don't want to discount and remind people of also clinical trials as well. Um, now, on the right here, you see some uh, recommended treatments. I so talked about CAR T cells, Selenexor, um, certain other interesting drugs such as venetoclax, uh, while not approved for myeloma, is one that we do consider in the relapse setting for patients with T1114 translocation. You have listed here belantamab mafodotin, but as many of you know, that that drug was recently withdrawn from the market uh, for patients um, with the current label indication of belantamab, which was for prior therapies. Now let's talk about targets in myeloma, and we are discovering many more targets. We started with CD38, and that really formed a backbone of our myeloma therapy options. Uh, but And we also SLAMF7. Uh, those were really our first two naked antibodies that were approved uh, in, in the treatment of myeloma. We've now moved beyond those to certainly BCMA targeting being a real backbone of myeloma therapy. And in the near future, you'll see GPRC5D and FCRH5 also becoming very much standard approaches in the treatment of relapsed multiple myeloma. So what are bispecific antibodies? Well, exactly that, the bi referring to the fact that there are two uh bindings, one to the tumor cell antigen, and currently BCMA is the one that is, is really most uh, uh, advanced, but also some of the other targets we talked about, GPRC5D and FCRH5 are in trial with bispecific antibodies. And the other target is the CD3 positive T cell. Now, having said that, in the future, there are also bispecifics um, binding other um, targets such as uh, NK cells. And um, so again, the, the field is really moving quite quickly, but the idea is really a T cell redirection mechanism to help uh, augment the um, anti-tumor effects of the antibody. We also are going to see tri-specific antibodies. So they include a T cell co-stimulatory molecule to further augment and stabilize the uh, immunologic effects of the antibody. Here you can see that I mentioned we have one approved to clistamab. Um, so we actually need to update this to, to mention it was approved. Um, there is a phase three ongoing uh, with teclistamab as well, um, but but also a phase three with elranatumab. Um, and then there's several other ones who are a little bit earlier in development, but nonetheless also show promising results. And I've listed some of them uh, below. Uh, and then I mentioned earlier tri-specific. So those are a much earlier in development, but you can see here a couple of them that are that are, are being tested and they have different third targets, again, to, to increase persistence and the stimulatory effects. Um, the one that we have, for example, at our institution is the one with CD38, CD3, and CD28 targeting. 
Um, here, the non-BCMA targeted bispecific antibodies currently in phase one uh, with FCRH5. And then we have talquetamab GPRC5D that has been presented as phase one, phase two, and a phase three trial is, is ongoing with it. Uh, so there's some common uh, toxicities associated with T-cell redirection, namely in terms of T-cell activation leading to cytokine release. And this happens in about 75% of patients treated with these bispecific antibodies. Fortunately, in the majority of cases, the CRS is grade one and grade two. Neurologic toxicity tends to be relatively low, certainly on the order of less than 10%. And so far, we've not seen any late neurologic toxicities with any of these agents. Hematologic toxicity is, is not uncommon in, in the majority of patients. It tends to be transient and self-limited, generally during the early cycles, which in part may represent um, extensive marrow infiltration of these patients with advanced disease, and also probably some uh, immunologic effects as well with T-cell trafficking. I think the biggest thing that we're struggling to understand and learn how to modify our treatments is the issue with infections. And we see now with longer term data, um, about 75% uh, of patients treated with these bispecifics ultimately have some sort of infectious complication. Those can be bacterial, but they can also be viral infections, um, representing in part this idea probably of, of T-cell exhaustion. And so we're learning um, how to use mitigation strategies to minimize that risk. That includes the use of prophylactic medications, such as, as for zoster prophylaxis and PJP prophylaxis, the use of um, immunoglobulins for patients, because the majority of patients, especially with BCMA bispecifics, tend to be hypogamma. And then infusion-related reactions, those tend to be somewhat less common. So in, in summary, bispecific antibodies represent a huge step forward for us in multiple myeloma. We are still learning how to optimize their use with many questions remaining about schedule and duration of therapy. Thank you. So in this section, uh, you know, um, it's titled Preparing for Future T-Cell Redirecting Therapies with Bispecific Antibodies. Um, I'm going to be highlighting uh, data um, that's emerging with teclistamab, as well as uh, other bispecific antibodies targeting BCMA that um, are making their way towards uh, a regulatory approval. So it would be good for, for us to learn a bit more about um, you know, each of those uh, strategies. Um, I do want to highlight that you know, most of this data is in the relapse refractory setting, um, you know, primarily focused in more of our triple class exposed, triple class refractory patients, but I will point out where the data is in earlier lines of treatment. Uh, before we start talking about teclistamab, I do want to um, share some of um, the proof of principle work that was done um, early on uh, by our German myeloma colleagues, uh, first with a compound called AMG420, which was the first BCMA-directed bispecific that was reported on um, in literature. Um, this was a continuous IV formulation uh, being given for four out of six weeks. Um, the early data was uh, shared in, in roughly 42 patients, um, and the overall response rate at the most therapeutic dose uh, was about 70%. You know, the, the challenge with this kind of approach was uh, really logistic. Uh, you know, it was not feasible for us 
to give patients uh, IV formulations as a continuous infusion for you know, 28 consecutive days. Um, and so a weekly dosing uh, formulation or extended half-life formulation called AMG701 uh, was um, then studied uh, in clinical trials. But around the same time, there were several other bispecific platforms that were uh, in development. So even though AMG701 did show clinical activity, as I'll show you over the next few slides, it wasn't um, at par with some of the other bispecifics that were in clinical development. And here they are. So you can see teclistamab, alranetamab, the Regeneron compound, um, you know, the, um, the BMS compound and the AbV compound. All of those uh, different bispecific antibodies actually demonstrated high overall response rate in a very refractory, triple class refractory percentage. You can see well over 60% in most of these data sets. Uh, showing very high response rates, kind of unprecedented uh, for this patient population, where we were used to seeing response rates of anywhere from 20 to 30 percent. We were now seeing responses in, you know, two-thirds of um, this patient population. So let me walk you through some of the data with teclistamab. Um, we first heard about teclistamab in the Majestic 1 trial. This trial had a dose escalation uh, uh, first in human portion, and then a phase two dose expansion portion. Um, so the sub, you know, both IV and subcutaneous formulations were examined in this uh, dose escalation uh, portion uh, of the study. There were two step up doses um, of uh, teclistamab that were given. Um, and the idea behind that step up dosing was to reduce the likelihood of uh, cytokine release syndrome as well as the grading of the cytokine release syndrome. Uh, and then the second part, the phase two portion was expanding, you know, the experience, uh, you know, of the recommended phase two dose in a larger cohort of patients. So eventually a total of 165 patients were treated at the recommended phase two dose of 1.5 uh, milligram per kilogram uh, dose of teclistamab given on a weekly basis. And these are the salient features. The overall response rate at that dose was 62%, with a uh, vast majority of patients, 58% getting VGPR or higher. The median follow-up at the time of uh, you know, this particular report was 7.8 months, uh, with the median time to first response being only 1.2 months, and very high MRD negativity rates uh, at 10 to the minus 5, 24.7% of the patients being MRD negative and 16.7% at 10 to the minus six. And at the time of this ASH report, um, the nine-month EFS and nine-month PFS rates were quite high, but more recently in the NEGM publication, we now know that the median PFS for, the, for this uh, study is uh, a little under 12 months. So quite impressive results with teclistamab. If we look at the A and SA um, uh, patterns, you know, the uh, infection uh, uh, appears to be um, uh, occurring in about um, uh, half of the patients, uh, a little over half of the patients, 60-odd uh, percent. In fact, uh, you know, 72% of the patients had evidence of hypogamma globulinemia. There were nine deaths due to AEs. Um, none were related to teclistamab. Um, again, you can see seven patients passed away from COVID, one from pneumonia, one from hemoperitoneum episode. 
If we look at the CRS, um, it occurred in about 70 odd percent of the patients, but uh, it was all grade one and two. There was only one patient who had a grade three event. Uh, the median time of onset of uh, CRS is about two days. And, and the neurotoxicity profile is quite favorable. Um, if you look at um, you know, the data compared to the CAR T cell data, as well as um, you know, some of the bispecific data we are seeing in the B cell malignancies, uh, the neurotoxicity uh, was seen in about 12.7% of the patients. And in vast majority of those, it was uh, headaches. So ICONS was only seen in five out, out of the 165 patients encephalopathy in two, and all of these uh, were grade one or two, um, and uh, median onset was 2.5 days, and they resolved with supportive care measures. Um, what is also interesting to see is data in previously uh, BCMA-targeted agent-treated patients, so patients who got an antibody drug conjugate or a CAR-T cell therapy, uh, what was observed in this uh, particular cohort was a response rate of well over 50 uh, percent. So 55 percent um, in ADC exposed, 53 percent in CAR-T exposed. If you look at the, um, you know, whole cohort, it was 52.5 with, um, you know, high rates of VGPR. Um, something, again, unprecedented, as, as you can see in the summer's plot below, um, though, you know, several of the responses are, are well beyond 12 months and, and sustained. Um, so, you know, important data uh, with um, this bispecific uh, then, more recently at ASH this year, we saw the combination of teclistomab with daratumumab and lenalidomide um, in a group of 32 patients. This is early lines of treatment, so median prior lines of two, with very high response rate at 93.5% and a CR rate of 54.8%. Uh, CRS was seen in 81% of the patients, um, but this was grade one and two. And infections were seen in about 75% of the patients. So this is something that all of us have to be you know, cognizant of as we're thinking about bringing these treatments into the earlier lines of treatment. And I'll love to get some feedback from my colleagues during the Q&A session about um, you know, the, the, duration of uh, the du uh, duration of treatment uh, you know, um, uh, in light of the responses we're seeing with the bispecific antibodies. Similarly, the combination of teclistomab with daratumumab on its own um, showed very high response rates, as you can see, uh, regardless of whether patients were treated uh, with the 1.5 milligram per kilogram dose on a weekly basis or the 3 milligram per kilogram dose every two weeks, the overall response rates, um, you know, were, um, you know, in the 70 uh, five to 74% range. Uh, the CRS and, and uh, again, infections were, were similar to what has been described with teclistomab. And uh, I do want to talk about elranitumab, um, you know, which is not far behind in terms of clinical development. And we're seeing some, some really good data. Uh, just like teclistomab, this particular um, uh, bispecific antibody targeting BCMA uh, was examined in a dose escalation uh, phase one first in human study uh, with subcutaneous dosing. Um, and then there was a, an, an expansion uh, part of this uh, particular study as well. Uh, one can see that, um, you know, the, the, in terms of the common side effects for, from hematologic uh, CRS uh, side effect perspective, very similar to what we're seeing. And, and priming dosing was utilized for l as well, which mitigated the degree uh, and the grading of the CRS that has been observed. Uh, and another important uh, thing to note 
um, in this particular data set is prior BCMA exposure with um, uh, ADCs and CAR-Ts was allowed in this, uh, in this particular data set and study. So what we find is an overall response rate of 64%, and the overall response rate in the patients who had BCMA prior BCMA-directed therapy was 54%. So similar to teclistamab, we're seeing responses with elranetamab as well. And then, you know, if we look at uh, the cohort of uh, uh, patients who did not have prior BCMA exposure, uh, we're seeing, um, you know, the the over 60% response even in this patient population at the recommended monotherapy dose. Um, looking at um, you know, the, the various um, uh, adverse events uh, within hematologic and non-hematologic categories, um, again, the most common issue similar to what has been described for teclistamab is uh, cytokine release syndrome. Looking at um, you know, the combination of uh, subcutaneous elranetamab with subcutaneous daratumumab, um, you know, uh, what has been reported so far um, uh, in the magnetism fight safety lead-in um, is that, uh, you know, it's fairly safe to, uh, to proceed with this combination. All grade um, three or four neutropenia seen in about 29% um, of the patients. Uh, grade three or four TEAEs were observed in 46% uh, of the patients. And CRS was seen in about 50% of this uh, patient population, and it was all grade one and two. Um, so the bottom line, you know, is that there are several bispecific antibody platforms in clinical trials. The, you know, we have one that's already FDA approved, uh, others that are making their way. Um, I think compared to CAR T cell therapies, the potential advantages with bispecifics are the off-the-shelf, um, you know, better safety profile and subcutaneous administration. But the potential disadvantage is the continuous therapy as the infection uh, risk uh, for these patients does go up uh, over time. As you can see, you know, um, uh, well over half of the patients do have um, an infection during the course of these treatments. Now we're seeing BCMA-directed bispecifics having shown uh, impressive, uh, you know, efficacy and safety. They're being examined in earlier lines of treatment in combination with monoclonal antibodies and, and immunomodulatory drugs. And there are even frontline studies being planned with high-risk uh, uh, myeloma patients in mind. Um, so it's quite possible that we can have bispecific antibody combinations, uh, you know, as frontline treatment for, for many of our patients. And I'd love to have more discussions around that uh, with my colleagues. And I would welcome um, you all to actually submit questions to us during the live Q&A portion of this program. Thank you so much. Hello, everyone. I'm Sekandar Alawadi from Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. And in this section, we'll be talking about addressing access to care in multiple myeloma. Over the years, outcomes have been improving in multiple myeloma. But as this study from one of my colleagues in uh, Mayo, Arizona, Dr. Fonseca, shows, uh, myeloma patients still do significantly worse than the general population. So the thought being that we still have ways to go before we can make it into hopefully a curable disease. But we know that the outcomes are improving. Still, we know that there are disparities that exist. So this was a study that uh, we did about now 10 or so years ago, looking at the national SEER database, showing how outcomes are different for patients according to their race and ethnicity. 
what we found was that Asians had the best survival than African-Americans, than whites, and Hispanics had the worst survival. And these differences became much more pronounced when the patients became older uh, in our elderly patients above the age of 75. When we talk about healthcare uh, access, utilization, impact, uh, there are several factors that come into play. These can be social, cultural, economic, et cetera. Some are related to disease biology, which may not be modifiable, but there are other that are socioeconomic, sociocultural, some of which may actually be modifiable, but it's important for us to figure out where those disparities and differences exist and how we can hopefully overcome those barriers. So I'll talk about some of these factors, which are quite interrelated and very complex, but hopefully we can tease something out of them. When we look at disease biology, uh, there have been many studies showing that the um, African-Americans, for example, have a lower incidence of high-risk disease. Uh, so, for example, TP53 mutation, 17P deletion, those are seen much less frequently in African-Americans. So if the playing field is okay, is it the same? Um, African-Americans should actually have the better survival, which is something I showed you in the previous slide. We also looked at differences in clinical presentation. And while we talk about African-Americans having a younger age at onset, we know that Hispanics have an even younger age as compared to whites, even younger than African-Americans at uh, median age at onset for myeloma. We also found out in a study that we did uh, four or five years ago now that um, uh, African-Americans at the time of presenting for myeloma or during treatment are much more likely to present with myeloma-related complications like hypercalcemia, kidney dysfunction, anemia, need for dialysis. Uh, but uh, it's, it's important to know that fractures are seen less frequently in African-Americans at presentation or during treatment because they tend to have a higher um, bone density as compared to whites. We also looked at the access to care and specifically treatment using novel agents. And although utilization over time has been increasing, we noted in this analysis, which was about four or five years ago, uh, that African-Americans have the lowest utilization of any race ethnicity type for lenalidomide. Similarly, the median time to the first dose of bortezomib, a cornerstone drug in myeloma, is about 102 days in Hispanics, significantly longer as compared to other race ethnicity subgroups. We then redid the analysis with a larger data from the CR Medicare, utilizing also other newer agents like carfilzomib and pomalidomide. And this data was a couple of years ago. And we found that still African-Americans and Hispanics had a lower utilization of novel agents. And over time, the increase in utilization was the least uh, in our analysis in Hispanics. There have been many, many studies looking at uh, stem cell transplant utilization and the healthcare disparities by race ethnicity. Now, it's important to note that according to certain analyses, only about 20 to 25% of transplant eligible patients in the US get a transplant. So we have a huge gap there, but even there, although over time, the utilization has been increasing for everybody, Hispanics, for example, have the lowest utilization of all race ethnicity in uh, for myeloma. Similarly, African-Americans get referred to transplant centers the um, significantly later as compared to whites. And we know deferred transplant or delayed transplant can have an effect on patient outcomes. So many data to show that disparity. 
But an important disparity is with uh, clinical trial enrollment, where this study from a couple of years ago showed that while African-Americans make up 20% or so of the uh, myeloma population in the U.S., only about 5% African-American representation in clinical trials that lead to FDA drug approval. We did that analysis a little bit later, just last year, out of uh, the same FDA data, uh, looking at it a little bit differently. And what we noticed that although in the most recent past, the number of race reporting in trials has been increasing, it still has a long way to go. Uh, we also looked at age, so demographics, and race reporting. And we noted that where race was not reported, the uh, patient population in the clinical trials was much farther and less representative of the true U.S. population of that cancer. We looked at all different cancers, but I have highlighted multiple myeloma uh, on the left figure of the slide. We also looked at financial toxicity a couple of years ago, and uh, patients uh, who are racial ethnic minorities, so African-Americans, Hispanics, they tend to have a higher um, out-of-pocket cost and financial impact of treatments as compared to whites. In this particular analysis, that finding was most stark for Hispanics. Now, I would like to point out, just take a case example of CAR T-cell treatment, which is important, newly available, very effective and desirable for myeloma. But we talk about, we used to talk about uh, the, the T's of disparity, trials, triplets and transplant. But now I think we can add a fourth T as per my colleague, Dr. Uh, Joe Mikhail, who shared this kind of um, this, this language with me and I, I took it to heart. Uh, the four T's of disparity now, including CAR T. So I'll just point out that as uh, this is just data, I quickly put together myself uh, looking at online information, and there are about 116 CAR T centers in the U.S. That means about 2.3 per state. But if you take out some of the larger states like California, Florida, Illinois, New York, Pennsylvania, Texas, uh, there are only about 73 CAR T centers in the country, about 1.6 per state. And uh, there are 12 states in the U.S. that have only one CAR T center in th the whole of that state. You can imagine insurances are a lot of times state limited. So hence, disparities, issues, workflow, logistic problems. Also, only one to two CAR T slots per month per site or product. There are two products available. In the best case scenario, that means we would be able to do about five and a half thousand CAR T's a year. Uh, we have about 35,000 new CAR uh, myeloma patients in the U.S. diagnosed every year. So... In the best case scenario, utilization for myeloma would be less than 15% of the patients getting to CAR-T in a given year. Um, access is very limited. Cost and reimbursement models are still being looked at. Uh, sometimes patients need to travel long distances. There are huge wait lists. And when we talk about racial ethnic disparities, uh, there are already studies showing that only about 6% of real world African-American patients are getting CAR-T. I mentioned previously, African-Americans uh, make about 20% of uh, myeloma patients in the country. So logistic and disparate challenges that need to be overcome, but at least we are trying to figure out what the challenges are so we can come up with strategies. It's important to note, I'm a huge pro uh, proponent of clinical trials, it's important to note that in clinical trials, we did this analysis a few years ago, pooling all the cooperative group clinical trial data, that when you look at clinical trial data, this is specifically for myeloma, no overall survival or progression-free survival benefit uh, based on race ethnicity. So it seems clinical trials are a great equalizer in some way. And similarly, this data from the VA a couple of years ago showing that, again, a, a level playing field, like right, the VA system. African-Americans tend to do better when given the equal access opportunity. Going back 
to this uh, slide I had started from that we found racial ethnic disparities in survival and African-Americans tend to do slightly better, but access needs to be addressed. So there are uh, quite a few things we can do about access. For example, um, the social determinants of health need to be addressed in patient care. Uh, there could be strategies to engage community, engage uh, community healthcare providers, certain centers that may be in underrepresented areas that could get more resources to come to clinical trials and get access to newer treatments. But I'll use a quick case study from a forthcoming clinical trial we have, uh, S2209. This will be an intergroup uh, NCI-supported uh, clinical trial uh, for newly diagnosed myeloma for frail patients, comparing uh, VRD light and DRD as the induction, and then uh, REV single agent or DARA REV as the maintenance. But importantly, we have changed the inclusion criteria so that patients with even lower counts can go in, even with growth factors. Uh, any amount of kidney dysfunction is allowed. Uh, High-risk patients are allowed, and the study will be opening at the VA also, uh, along with uh, cooperative groups across the country to try and get a real-world population. So making the plan is good, but do we really want to end to uh, wait for the end of the study to find out if we did okay? Well, for this particular clinical trial, we've actually come up with an active monitoring plan also. So centers, wherever the study is uh, open, will be divided into different categories, depending upon a projected uh, minority accrual. And we will do an interim analysis, not just for safety and uh, efficacy, but more importantly, also for minority accrual. So that if centers are meeting their target or are not meeting their target, we'll ask them why or why not. And hopefully with all of these learnings, we'll be able to come up with a strategic plan of how we can improve minority accrual into clinical trials. And again, go back to getting the right treatment to the right patient at the right time. Thanks a lot for uh, this, and uh, I look forward to the Q&A session. All right. Um, welcome to our live panel discussion. Um, um, you know, you've, you've heard uh, all three of us um, discuss, um, you know, several topics uh, that are relevant to the BCM-directed strategies, and I wanted to uh, get my, you know, uh, uh, my colleagues to give their takes on on some specific, uh, you know, questions, um, you know, that each of uh, us have raised in our respective uh, respective talks. Um, so the first one, you know, is kind of um, an elephant uh, in the room. You know, when we started this year, we had a BCM directed um, ADC, you know, that we were utilizing in our clinics, and. Um, and uh, we were hoping that we'll get uh, the second BCMA car approved. And, and maybe if we get lucky, we might get a BCMA bi-specific approved. But, um, you know, the and, and we were talking about, okay, you know, how do we pick ADC versus, you know, car versus bi-specifics? And now, you know, we're at the end of the year and, and the discussion has totally changed. So, you know, ADC is out of the picture. And now, you know, we are trying to figure out, you know, the logistics of bi-specifics versus car. Um, so, um, um, you know, Amrita, what do you think? Um, you know, how how are you, you know, picking one strategy versus the other? Because there are logistic challenges to both. I, I, so I think, thank you, sir. I think what I'm, uh, some of it's not dictated by me. It's dictated by the pace of the disease to your point about logistic challenges. Someone who's a relapsing pretty aggressively. I mean, this. I'm going to use the BCMA directed by specific someone where I can still kind of control the disease. I think many of us are in fact, 
sort of looking at car while the person's on their for starting their fourth line of therapy thinking okay let me put you on the wait list and then the minute it's this stops working you know you, you may have a spot so i think it it tends to be the car t people tend to be somewhat slower progressors who can wait for the slot and then the manufacturing time which is also unfortunately still a bit of a challenge for us uh, what about you sikander um have you have you guys started to treat uh, commercial um, by specifics yet, or? Uh, so no, actually not yet. But in fact, uh, Sadat is so timely because earlier today, um, my colleagues in Rochester and Arizona and myself in Florida, we were all exchanging emails about logistics, and we were still trying to figure out inpatient, outpatient, how many days inpatient, uh, outpatient short stay unit, how do we monitor, etc. Hmm. But I. Uh, to Amrita's point, uh, sometimes the disease just presents itself. But I'll take it one step uh, forward and say, if we are in that perfect state that we have CAR-T availability, manufacturing, logistics sorted out, bi-specific, everything sorted out, I have thought to myself, how will I talk to a patient and present this? And I guess the way I think about it is we have data with both teclistamab and alranitumab post-CAR-T, we don't have post-alranitumab or teclistamab or bispecific treatment with CAR-T. So the disease, how it progresses out of each one of these would be different, I would think. So at this point, if all else uh, similar, if I can consider, take, if I can try to, if I can get the patient to CAR-T, I will try to get them to CAR-T just because evidence says I can come to a bispecific later. But again, with time, I think we'll have more data. No, I, I agree with both of you. I, I think, you know, that the other, um, you know, caveat to that, you know, BCMA exposed experience with bispecifics is uh, we don't know what dose of, uh, you know, the CAR patients received and how long ago they received before progressing. So, you know, if they're progressing a year later, then I think, you know, they, they got the most from, from that BCMA CAR strategy. Um, and, and they're probably going to be still, you know, um, uh, responsive to a BCMA-directed uh, therapy versus someone who's progressing within, you know, two or three months of receiving a BCMA car. That's where, you know, I think we're going to be a little bit uh, wary about, you know, um, changing up the mechanism of action that we're going to give to the patients. Um, but, I mean, to Secunda's point, there was an abstract presented from MD Anderson retrospectively looking at IDA cell outcomes after prior T-cell-directed strategies. I, I grant you, they think there were only about six patients that had a BCMA, or even they didn't say BCMA, but they just said bispecific. And it seems like six months, if you waited, the patients got CAR-T less than six months, they really had a very low response and short PFS on the matter of three or four months. So suggesting also T-cell health, probably, uh, or T-cell exhaustion after just by specific exposure may be important. Yeah, and then that, that may impact, you know, the quality of, of uh, you know, leukophoresis, uh, you know, for the products too, I think. Um, um, all right, so um, I have a question for, for you, um, Amrita, and it's in context of... Um, uh, Sikander's presentation and the fact that, you know, you have uh, this new wonderful role and, and you're probably thinking about, uh, you know, strategies to address the diversity and inclusion, uh, you know, in clinical trials 
Um, so, you know, what are your thoughts, um, you know, around some of those strategies, you know, in in your part of the country? Uh, you know, uh, how are you thinking about, um, you know, um, you know, increasing the inclusion of, of diverse populations? Um, yeah, I, that's a great and tough question, so I'd write, I think, and Sikanda can speak to just the, you know, the diversity of population in LA, but also just geographically how far apart we all are in LA, I think. So those are challenges in regards to access of care. I think one of the things is having a different model that we have, you know, we have a lot of satellite clinics and changing this idea of clinical trials being centralized and trying to decentralize them is a key part of this uh, in terms of opening up access to care because it's unrealistic to expect every patient to have the resources to be able to drive 60 miles you know once a week twice a week for for treatment so I think that's a major part obviously patient education we have a big commitment to that in regards to awareness patients and awareness in the community of physicians to refer patients. So I think those are some of the steps that we're certainly taking. Um, you know, we've amended some of the trials like the SWOG S1803 trial to be a little bit more inclusive as well. Uh, so hopefully all those steps will again make inroads into some of the challenges we face. Yeah, I think, you know, um, absolutely. I think this decentralization and then site selection, you know, th those are going to be, you know, very important. And then, you know, again, you know, I think, uh, you know, with um, Dr. Ed Kim, uh, you know, uh, at City of Hope, you know, he's he's actually overseen a very similar model, you know, being developed in North Carolina. So I think, you know, I really look forward to how you guys uh, really, you know, um, expand that model, um, you know, in, in, in your nook of the woods. Um, so, um, you know, I'm going to go to uh, Dr. Alwadi for the next question. Um, you know, you, you kind of highlighted, um, um, you know, Bellamaf in, in your presentation. Um, so where do we go from here? You know, because, you know, the, the drug is active, we know it's a safety profile. Um, and we were just learning how to use it in, in the clinics in an effective manner. You, you know, in someone who's uh, benefiting from it, you don't necessarily need to give it, you know, every three weeks, you can delay it to every eight weeks or even every 12 weeks, you know, um, and, and kind of manage that, that safety bit of it. So, so, so where do we go from here? Um, sure. Um, I think so. that's an extremely important question. And in fact, um, I would, I would bring our, our our listeners and all of us back to the point that the the Dream Three trial, which did not pan out and led to the voluntary withdrawal of this drug as a single agent from the market by the company, that did not pan out because of an efficacy as compared to the comparator arm. There was not a new safety signal or a concern that came up. Now, why is this important? Because those patients who are deriving benefit are still continuing. Yeah, it's a little bit cumbersome for us to keep them on more paperwork and all that, but we're continuing them on that. And in a way, I also appreciate that all the clinical trials with this drug, the clinical trial platform is continue, continuing to be supported by the pharma company, because that way I think we'll understand a little bit better how to use this, what to use it with, how to bring it back. And maybe it'll 
I, I pointed out in my presentation that maybe the drug will come back as a combination. But even if it comes back as a combination, there are currently clinical trials ongoing uh, where we are trying to see how to most effectively and safely give this drug. So maybe there will be a future for this drug in some way, shape, or form. And this is kind of a way, um, a, a kind of an, a new problem that we have. There are so many drugs coming up, and there is a, a there is a want, there is a need to get the drug to market and to patients as fast as possible to hopefully get the patient's benefit from that. And sometimes some trials will pan out, others will not. In fact, in the past year or so, we've seen more drugs in myeloma that have either decided not to move forward or have been pulled back. And that is because just there are so many drugs. So in, in a way, maybe this is a good problem to have, uh, that we are trying to come up with the right and the best, most op, uh, appropriate drugs for our patients. No, very well said. And and again, you know, I, I share your, um, you know, uh, uh, view that, you know, we, we are probably going to see this uh, drug come through in combinations. And perhaps Dream 3, you know, if it had been designed as a non-inferiority study, we wouldn't be in, in this situation because, you know, we're using this drug after patients have uh, been treated with pomalidomide. Um all right. So, so one, you know, question I have for, for Dr. Krishnan, and it's, you know, it's going to be probably a long-winded answer because we, we saw a lot of teclistamab um, data at, um, at ASH. We saw a lot of BCMI specific data at ASH and, and, and we saw combination therapy data in early alliance. Um, can you just, you know, share a little bit of, uh, you know, what excited you about some of those combinations, uh, Amrita? So, I mean, we saw some of the early phase run-in of Majestic 7, right, which is Tech Darlen. Um, and we've already seen data, not at this ash, but prior meetings of Tech Dara combinations. And, and those are including patients who have been Dara refractory, suggesting you can still get you know, response rates about 70%. So the combination does seem to be um, have some degree of synergy. So I think those are the good things. The challenges remain this infection issue and the question of when you add more agents, specifically DARA, in fact, because we know that patients become fairly hypogamma. It's fairly, you know, of the agents, very particularly immunosuppressive. So I think infection risks still remain to be how to best mitigate that, especially viral infections, right? I think we we are better about bacterial infections. We can use antibiotic prophylaxis. We can give IVIG, but we're pretty helpless in terms of viral infections. Yeah, and, and this is where, you know, we've had a lot of conversation around, um, you know, um, response-driven fixed-duration treatment uh, with some of these bi-specifics. So, you know, I, I guess our audience will be hearing more about it in the coming years, Um uh, thank you so much, Dr. Krishnan and Dr. Alawadi, for uh, your wonderful uh, insights as well as uh, your respective talks. Um, and thank you, our audience, for joining us today. We hope you found the information informative and beneficial to your practice. Um, just as a reminder, you will receive an email later today with a link to the post-test. Uh, once you complete the post-test, you will be able to claim your credits and download your certificate. Uh, for more information on today's lectures and additional CMA activities, please visit Prova Education and ReachMD. Thank you so much. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. 
This activity is provided by Prova Education. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash Prova. Thank you for listening.